0: Christina, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. Was that a yes? Yep, you're all Okay. Good. We're going to wait a couple more minutes for hopefully another body or two to show up. person out there. Waiting for the projector. Come on, you can do it. It Says Sony now. Now nothing. Now a flower, there we go. That's what we were waiting for. Okay, well, um, hopefully the few of you who are on outside there can hear me. Uh, Really would like to see about another Six or seven people signed on in this little side banner here, but we'll get caught up. Um, Our objective today is to start remembering a little bit about chemistry. But first off, I usually start class with a picture. Can anyone tell me what that is? An iris, very good. I throw a little horticulture at you, maybe some geography, some various other things along the way, just to uh, keep you on your toes. Okay, let's see. I need to stop sharing and go over to this and share again. Better make sure this thing is on record. Yep, it's recording, okay. All right, so dairy chemistry and analysis. So we have to see how much chemistry any of us remember or perhaps have forgotten over several years. Some of you hopefully have taken chemistry within the last uh, year or so, some uh, didn't pay as much attention during chemistry class as perhaps you could have. Uh, I keep harping on that. You'll catch up at some point. We're gonna start today with the very simple concept of what is an element, right? I don't know that you can actually tell. Periodic table. How many of you are familiar with this concept of a thing called the periodic table? Okay. Is there any rational organization put to why elements are where they are on that periodic table? So what is the biggest thing that defines where an element goes on that periodic table? Yep. We're going to be working on atomic number and atomic mass, but what specific thing controls what number it's placed? Electrons. The number of protons in the atom, right? If that whole concept of what is a proton, an electron, or a neutron is something you don't remember, time to go back and find your chemistry book, right? But elements are things that you would find on a periodic table. If you don't have a periodic table, I suggest you take your phone out and you get one. I have two of them loaded on as apps on my phone. They're free. It's a simple concept. If you don't remember how many protons, how many electrons, what's the normal amount of electrons it may be sharing with something else, you need to have a method to help prompt yourself. Okay, So periodic table, very useful thing to have. Elements are found on the periodic table. What is a compound as different than an element? Can be broken down into elements. It's a combination of things like common table salt or sodium chloride. Sodium as an element, chlorine as an element, combined make a compound, right? We look at something like fructose. Fructose is a sweetener. It's a compound made of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. The numbers of each of those things is going to create specific characteristics for that compound, right? But I want you to remember right up front, what's the difference between an element and a compound? That one shouldn't be very difficult, right? If you already are behind on that one, it might be a longer road than we want it to be, okay? This first day or so is really supposed to be just ticklers to your brain, things that you should remember Nothing new, but a review. Because I've found over the years, people forget stuff. How many of you remember 100% of all of your classes from last spring? Zero, right? How many of you think you remember 15% of what you had in class from last spring? Eh, Maybe, could we go to 50%? Probably not. So we're working on this review so that we're all going to at least start on that same level playing field going forward. Atomic weights, molecular weights, in a similar fashion. Atomic weight relates directly to the element. It comes from the number of protons and neutrons present in that atom, right? A molecular weight comes from the combination of the individual atomic weights. Say we had a substance like lactose, we've got a certain number of carbon atoms, a certain number of hydrogen atoms, certain number of oxygen atoms, and we have to add all of those together to get to a molecular weight. Molecular weight of something like lactose is approximately 342. The molecular weight of table salt is much, much lower. It's only one sodium and one chlorine added together. So the molecular weight there, clearly smaller, right? We're down somewhere around 38, much smaller, right? When we start talking about some of the components in milk, we're gonna start talking about items that have molecular weights in the tens of thousands, very large complex molecules. We'll also have some molecules that we're gonna worry about that have a molecular weight of less than 50. Why is that going to be important? We're going to use that property of the molecular weights to give us a way to fractionate milk into its components. Membrane filtration systems primarily function with molecular weight cutoffs. How do you split casein proteins from the serum proteins by molecular weight? How do you take the protein fraction away from the carbohydrate fractions by molecular weight? So we need to be clear on what that is. And if we don't remember, again, get back into your chemistry book and try and figure it out. There's a lot of material that hopefully you remember. Hopefully you remember what an electron, a proton, and a neutron are. Those are the particles that make up an atom. How those electrons are arranged around the core, the core being the protons and neutrons, are called orbitals or shells. There's an inside shell. And then as you get more and more electrons, they get further and further from the core. and your overall atomic or ionic radii, the whole size of that item gets bigger. It's got more layers, more shells, more orbitals built around that core. Well, that's gonna become important when we start looking at how elements can fit together to make compounds. We have to think spatially about what's there. How many electrons are there? How big are the orbitals? Where are the shells? Is going to impact how it's all going to fit together. So if you don't remember anything about orbitals and how we've arranged those, again, time to go back, check that chemistry book, and figure it out. Electron affinities is related to the amount of energy that is required in the process of adding an electron, pulling it into or adding it to an orbital shell. Right. More often we deal in electronegativity relative measure of that atom to either attract an electron to itself or its willingness to give up an electron when we start to form bonds. Something like fluorine is not a very good sharer. The electronegativity for fluorine is four. It's the highest electronegativity you're going to find on the periodic table. It does not want to share its electrons with anybody, but it's more than happy to snitch one from somebody else. Very, very much going to create an ionic bonding structure. The bigger the difference in electronegativity between the elements in a compound, the more likely that it's going to be ionic. But if there's not a lot of difference, the sharing is fairly equal, that compound is gonna be covalently bonded and much more stable. Okay? So we need to be paying attention to some of those things. If those are new to you, if they are things you don't remember, this should all have been actually covered when you took chemistry in high school before you took chemistry in college, right? I quite clearly remember teaching this within the the first six weeks of high school chemistry when I taught high school chemistry. So I'm hoping that you do remember some of this, okay? But if you don't, go back and review. Otherwise, when we start going into interactions, when we start looking at what a dairy process does to milk and milk, if you really look at it, we can break it down into approximately 260 identifiable individual compounds, all present within a single solvent, which is water. So we need to to be thinking in those terms. Inorganic, the minerals in milk, okay, when we take a sample of milk, drive off the moisture and then put it in an ashing oven and burn off all the carbon and all the hydrogen and all the oxygen, because that's what's gonna burn. We're left with the inorganic materials, things like sodium, things like zinc, magnesium, selenium. There are individual elements within milk that are going to be inorganic. An inorganic compound does not contain carbon, okay? So, when we're talking about milk, the only portion that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about inorganic is in that small section when we talk about milk minerals. Okay? So, really, only about a week or so, maybe two weeks of our time together will be spent dealing more strictly in inorganic chemistry. But for most of you, if you took Chem 106 or Chem 112 as your starting point, that was primarily inorganic chemistry, not dealing with carbon and how it throws all sorts of curves at you in the way things are going to react. The other major branch in chemistry is organic. This is where things start to get a little more complex. We start having carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, right? Okay. So if I were to just write out a formula for a compound, I could write down something like I'm writing C6H12O6. Is that reasonably a compound? Yes. Does it tell you anything about that compound as far as what it looks like and how it's gonna behave? Not at all. That basic, formula would be the same whether I'm talking about glucose or galactose or fructose. They're all three monosaccharides. We're going to encounter all of them at points as we're talking about dairy chemistry. But when you get to organic chemistry, simple formulas like this don't tell us enough information. They don't tell us the structure, how things are going to interact, how they're going to relate. So we're going to have to move beyond the simplicity. That's useful if you're balancing an equation. I'm not going to make you balance equations here, okay? But when we start talking about milk lipids, milk proteins, the primary carbohydrate, which is lactose, we're going to have an awful lot of discussion about how those carbons, hydrogens and oxygens, and perhaps other elements, especially when we're talking about proteins, the fourth element that's always present is nitrogen, how they fit together, right? That's going to become very important to us. So we do a little bit of inorganic chemistry when we're talking about minerals and milk, but most of our time, is going to be spent in the realm of organic chemistry. Does that make sense? you with me so far? Okay. So what is a bond? A bond is an attraction. What holds things together, right? People can be bonded together. you can have many things attracted and held together. Sometimes things are held together very tightly and sometimes relatively loosely, right? There are different types of chemical bonds and there are different characteristics of those bonds which make them more likely to stay closely held together or easily broken, right? So how those bonds are gonna behave, we have to think about if we're gonna understand the reactions that might occur when we're making different dairy foods. Ionic bonds, one part of the compound takes the electron from the other part of the compound, which is more than willing to give it up, right? Sodium chloride, table salt, the most common example of an ionically bonded substance. As a solid, it's sodium chloride. As soon as you introduce it into the solvent, in this case water, can you find it in existence as sodium chloride? No. It will dissociate into sodium ions and chloride ions within the solvent, which is water. Which of those two things, the sodium or the chlorine, got a hold of the electron? chlorine. Sodium gives it up. right? and that's based on its position on the periodic table and where those electrons are in those orbitals. Okay, so we're going to have certain compounds that are ionic. Most of the compounds that we're going to be talking about are going to be more of a covalent nature. Covalent share. Now they may share, but sometimes one is really like sharing, but it has 60 or 70% of the time that it has the electrons and the other only has them 30%. If they're sharing absolutely equally, That happens, but more likely, they're gonna have a little disparity in how they're sharing. But a sharing is occurring in a covalent bond. Most of what we're gonna be dealing with are covalent bonds. But when we do things like add salt to cheese, Now we change everything because we threw a bunch of ions in the system that can now react and create different substances in relation to those things that were already covalently bonded. So the covalents are sharing, the ionics are essentially transferring or giving up an electron to a different group. Those covalent bonds, you've heard the term single bonds, double bonds, triple bonds, I hope. What are we usually talking about when we're talking about single, double and triple bonds? Those bonds are between what specific element Whenever you start to see double bonds, they're typically in long chains. I'm just uh. I know, I'm not sure how to get the camera to focus only on the whiteboard. So what I put up here is butyric acid. It's a four carbon chain. Every place there's a dash, there would be a hydrogen, Okay. There's a double bond with the oxygen sharing. And then there's an O and an H. What do you notice about this particular structure? What is carbon always trying to share? It's sharing electrons, but how many? Four. Four. Carbons are always looking to have four. So sometimes we're going to get cases where We put a double bond in there, and now there's only one hydrogen associated with that carbon on either side instead of two, right? So it changes the way they're going to behave. But the double and triple bonds are almost always related to the carbon atoms in that organic structure. How many of you have ever heard of the term cis and the term trans in relation to an organic compound? So what does that mean? Okay, so a cis bond, when you approach the double bond in that carbon chain, in a cis bond, both of the hydrogens are located on the same side, essentially. So what does that do? It leaves a void over here. There's not any hydrogens there, so what effectively does it do structurally? It creates a bend, because in the space where there's no hydrogens, it folds in. So, structures that are, have double bonds that are cis-bonded are not completely linear. They have kinks and bends in their formation. So what does that do for us? Can we pack many of those together? No. No. If you think about it, a brand new ream of paper, all the pieces of paper are nice and flat. You can stack 500 of them together, nice and easy. Fold them all once and then try and restack them. Does it take up the same amount of space? Fold them twice, Not what? They take up even more space, right? Every time we introduce a cis-type bond, we create a kink and we will increase the volume that our item, whether it's a protein, a lipid, the space that it takes up. And if we have the same molecular weight taking up more volume, what happens to its density? It goes down. But if it's a trans bond, in a trans bond, the hydrogens are opposite each other on a double bond and it remains linear. So when you have trans bonds, the molecule remains linear and it can be packed more tightly. Nutritionally, where do we get into a challenge there? If we have lipids that have a large number of trans bonds, they pack very tightly together. They're going to be heavier, more dense, more likely to create plaque or hard, be harder to move around within the bloodstream. If they have cis bonds, they're a little less dense. They're not as packed together. They're not as sticky. They're more easy to keep moving. But we have both kinds in different lipid structures based on a lot of things, from genetics to diet to But Single, double, triple bonds, they're all referring, in this case, to covalent bonds. And when we start to have In the triple bond, there's no hydrogens on either side, right? In the chain, you'd have a point where the hydrogens go away, and the two carbons are sharing three electron pairs together. But in the double bonds, you can have it either creating kinks or remaining linear. Is everybody with me so far, I hope? Does this match up anything with any explanations you've had before? I hope so. Polar and nonpolar covalent bonds relate to how well those individual atoms are willing to share, right? If we're sharing from a carbon to a carbon, they're probably doing it fairly equally, right? But if we're sharing atoms between an oxygen atom, or sharing electrons between an oxygen atom and a hydrogen atom, they're of different atomic weights they have different spatial configurations, do you think the sharing will be equal? Will one of those elements as part of that compound have a greater pull than the other? And the one that has the greater pull then, that's the pole. it becomes more polar. If there's equal pull, then we have a nonpolar covalent bond. But as we get further into things, especially uh, in lipid chemistry, when we're looking at how the fat globule membrane puts itself together, how it associates the phospholipids and the sphingolipids is based on their polarity. How are they going to position themselves relative to the rest of the lipid as it's carried around within the solvent? which in milk is always water. So that's where it's gonna become important, to remember, is it polar, is it nonpolar? That's gonna change how it behaves in relation to something else, okay? So if I think about a molecule, Something like water, what is, what is the chemical composition of water as far as elements? H2O, two hydrogens and an oxygen. Is this going to be really large? But if I start looking at something like an alpha-lactalbumin, which is one of the serum proteins, it has 197 individual amino acids sequenced together in a chain. Each of those amino acids having a molecular weight of somewhere around 100 to 110. I suddenly have a molecule that has a molecular weight of over 19,000. Do you think spatially it's going to occupy the same amount of space as that water molecule? No. So as we have different elements included in our compound, it's going to change the size of the individual portions of that compound and how they can fit together. If we've got cis bonds or trans bonds, if we've got kinks that push the molecules apart, it changes the molecular spacing and that's going to have a lot to do, especially when we get into proteins and milk proteins, with how they're going to behave. How do they react to changes in pH? How do they react to changes in temperature? Heat input. Huge impact based on the molecular spacing that's there. So if that concept of how molecular spacing works, hopefully, if you need to do a little refresher, now's the time. orbitals relate to molecular spacing. The larger the atom is based on total number of protons and neutrons, of course, the more protons it has, it also is going to have more electrons. And only a certain number of electrons fit into each orbital shell before we go up to another shell. And every time we move a line on our periodic table. Every time we drop down a line, we're going into another layer of orbital shell. So those individual elements are getting bigger. The amount of space they occupy is bigger. If you try and put a large atom and some smaller ones together, you can only arrange them, pack them together, configure them, in certain ways so how that's going to come about is going to have impacts on when we make a dairy food right and changes in temperature changes in pH can impact the energy level of those orbitals, whether they're staying stable, whether they're trying to be excited and and take up more room. And it's going to impact texture and structure of our product. So we need to remember how the orbitals work. I'm going to come back to positional isomerism on Monday. But if you start thinking about something related to carbon, right? Every carbon atom has four other things attached to it. Well, does it make a difference whether it's attached above the plane or below the plane? Yes. If it has, how many ways can we adjust that? in something as simple as a glycerol molecule, which is a three carbon chain, the backbone for any triglyceride, which is the primary fat in milk, there are six different places that those fatty acid side chains can be attached, positional isomerism. We'll come back and spend a little more time on that on Monday. Any questions? Any of this is really standing out to you that, boy, I don't remember any of this at all. Find your chemistry book. Find somebody who still has their chemistry book. Do a little review. All right. If there's no questions, we'll, uh, we'll stop the sharing and stop the recording.